Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. On this Communion Sunday, I want to preach on verses that very much relate to the Lord's Supper and what it, what it means to properly celebrate or observe uh, the Lord's Supper. And hear these words from God's Word, 1 Corinthians 11, beginning at verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, uh, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. When we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. It happens too often that churches are torn apart by divisions. I don't know if you've ever been apart of a divided church. Perhaps by God's grace, you have been spared from being actually involved in a church conflict with other believers. But even if you have been spared from such turmoil, I would venture to guess that you have at least heard of churches with members warring. And it can be shocking what happens in churches among those who confess, profess to be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's the old example of Christians fighting over something as trivial as the color of the new curtains for the nursery, or fighting over whether children should be homeschooled or put in Christian school. I literally know, not within the OPC, but of a pastor deposed from office for insisting on homeschooling his children rather than putting them in the Christian school. Disagreement among members over whether a pastor should have a Corvette, believe it or not. Um... I think the idea was that this was something extremely extravagant that a pastor shouldn't have, and in fact, it was a $1,500 worth uh, old Corvette that the guy was restoring in his garage. Or debate that and division that tore through a church about whether there should be a cross put on the wall behind the pulpit. 
What is almost inevitable in a church marked by division is worship that is not really worship. How can there be genuine worship offered in an atmosphere of love and joy and thanksgiving when God's people are harboring negative feelings toward one another? And so there are churches where people gather together for worship and they are doing all of the right things outwardly, but there's this spiritual rift that negatively colors all that they do. There was a church back in the Presbytery of the Dakotas that was struggling with division and the Presbytery was trying to help this church out and the report that came back was that they were getting a lot of visitors, but these visitors would come and they could sense a lack of peace and unity and never came back. You can pretty much know that something is not right in a church um, if there's, of course, outright arguing going on, but there are also subtle signs of disunity, like everyone just heading home right after the worship service without talking to one another, or there are holy huddles of people in their cliques. The church should be a place of joy and peace and fellowship where God's people come together to praise their God and to encourage one another in their walk with the Lord. And I maintain that there would be no division if Christians always kept their focus upon Jesus and always remembered his death for them. It should be disturbing to you to think of how we in our sinfulness can turn something holy like worship into something shameful. You realize that even the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper can become the occasion for divisions. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are the two sacraments that Christ has instituted in the church um, as a means of spiritual worship and blessing, and yet they can be turned by us into something very negative spiritually. Back in chapter 1, Paul is confronting the divisions in the Corinthian church, and in that context brings up baptism. He asks them, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And so Paul was either aware of a problem or anticipated that there might be a problem in Corinth with them using even baptism in an inappropriate way to fuel divisions. Imagine people bragging over the minister who baptized them rather than bragging about the Savior into whom they were baptized. And so, yes, even something like baptism can be desecrated by our sinful desires for man-centered glory. Do not underestimate the power of man's selfishness to invade and pervert even the worship of God. This morning, we are dealing with Paul's instruction to the Corinthians regarding the Lord's Supper. Now, we didn't start at the very beginning of chapter 11, but Paul there is dealing with specific problems that were coming up in public worship. The first problem Paul confronts is women not wearing head coverings, because in, in that culture, that behavior conveyed an ungodly lack of submission to male headship. And then the second issue surrounding the Corinthians' public worship, the issues that we are considering this morning, um, the second issue is how the Corinthians have perverted the Lord's Supper and have done so in such a way that Paul says they aren't even actually celebrating the sacrament. The Lord's Supper has become an occasion for divisions 
in the church. As the people of God gather together around the table to eat together, what should be a time of fellowship and encouragement and spiritual growth in communion with each other and their Savior has become the occasion for the rich to show their pride and selfishness by refusing to share food with the poor. And there's even drunkenness going on at these meals. And in the context of all of this confusion, Paul reminds the people of what the Lord's Supper is supposed to actually be about, a remembrance of the Lord's death on the cross. The Lord's Supper should be a solemn celebration of the Lord's suffering and death on the cross as we remember all that he voluntarily endured for our salvation. By how they irreverently treated the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper, the Corinthians, Paul says, are sinning against Christ's own body and blood shed on the cross. Now we understand why God has brought judgment on the Corinthian church. Paul points out that many are weak and ill. Some have even died because of how they have dishonored Christ. And Paul warns them against further profaning of the Lord's table. He says they need to use their homes for their ordinary meals and make the Lord's Supper a real communion. So I want to have us consider this passage under the theme of a proper celebration of the Lord's Supper. We want to consider these verses under three points. First of all, it's perversion, that is how the Corinthian church was perverting uh, a proper celebration of the Lord's Supper. And then second, it's purpose. And third, our preparation. So we begin with perversion. Can it be the case? Can it be the case that a person is better off to stay home than to go to church on Sunday? Usually we assume as a matter of course that a church service is going to be pleasing to God and a blessing to God's people. And I think there's a tendency to judge those who don't attend church as unspiritual. But if you were living in Corinth, you'd be able to come up with some good spiritual reasons to stay away from the church there. You would think that the gathering of God's people is always going to be for the good, but Paul tells the Corinthians that when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. And I take Paul to be saying that it would be better for you not to be coming to worship at all than to bring your disrespectful worship. It would be better for you to fellowship with God at home by yourself or perhaps with only a few other believers than to come together as you do with all of these divisions. What took place in the Corinthian church uh, from that, we learned that it is possible for a body of believers to be so unspiritual and so ungodly in how they conduct themselves in corporate worship that if you participate with them, you actually leave worship with your faith weakened. It can be discouraging and even spiritually harmful to attend some churches. When we began chapter 11, um, we, when you, you look back to the beginning, you see Paul commending the Corinthians. Um, the ESV has Paul commending them for remembering Paul and maintaining what he calls the traditions. And the word traditions in the Greek really means instruction. It means teaching. It refers to the apostolic doctrine that the Corinthian church, the believers there, had embraced. So the problem in Corinth was not doctrine, but it was practice. So even though Paul could commend them for having the right doctrine, they weren't applying doctrine 
in the correct ways. They weren't applying the doctrine of headship properly. And so Paul has just spent some time explaining how headship should affect the practice of the church with respect to head coverings and hair length back in that time and in that culture. And now in coming to verse 17, Paul uses the same word commend that's used back in verse 2. A moment ago, back just a few verses earlier, he commended them. Now having moved on to the practice of the church with respect to the Lord's Supper, he says he has nothing to commend. And that's a pretty serious accusation. At the same time, Paul is ready to admit that he doesn't necessarily believe everything he has heard about what's going on. He says that he has heard about their divisions and that he believes it in part. It's a mark of good pastoring that Paul doesn't exaggerate the problem. And in fact, it's part of love to believe all things. So we see Paul doesn't want to believe the worst, and he's open to hearing that things are not as bad as he has heard or perhaps imagines. But he has heard enough to know there's a problem. And so he brings it up and he deals with it. So what is happening? Well, he first of all talks about the problem of division. Verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And this word divisions refers to how the believers there in that church are alienated from each other because of negative feelings that they have towards one another. There are different kinds of division, right, that can take place. And it may be that when you think of division, what comes to mind is, is a church splitting and one group leaving to go off and to promote their own church. But in this case, the believers are coming together, and so the division here is not physical, but it's emotional. There are rifts in their fellowship and in their love for one another. In other words, within this body of believers are hard feelings involving envy and anger and bitterness toward one another. And as you know, when people have negative feelings toward one another, it comes out in their attitudes and actions. And so this was the case in Corinth, that there were these divisions, even though They continued to come together. In order to understand the nature of the divisions in the church of Corinth, we need to understand something of the unique practice that was going on in Corinth in connection with the Lord's Supper. And what was happening there in Corinth actually matches up with the practice of the early church as a whole. We have the writings of the early church fathers that describe for us worship practices in the early church. And we know from those accounts, that churches had what were called agape or love feasts. Now that sounds to us like, as as you study what's described, it, it sounds like a combination of a church fellowship meal and the Lord's Supper. And based upon what we read in the church fathers, if we were to still follow the practice of the early church, what we would do is we would have a church fellowship meal and then sometime during the meal, the bread of the Lord's Supper would be distributed, and then after the meal, the cup would be distributed. And so what you had was a regular meal intertwined with the spiritual sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And in Acts, we read of this, though you may not have realized it. Acts chapter 2 lists four things that mark the daily lives of believers at that time. Number one, obedience to apostolic teaching. Second, fellowship. Third, breaking of bread. And fourth, prayer. And from the church fathers, we know that this breaking of bread, which sounds like just eating together, often involved the celebration of the Lord's Supper using sacramental bread and wine. And it's interesting to note that some early 
uh, some scholars of the early church maintained that even in some Christian households, communion was celebrated during a meal. Nevertheless, uh, Jude 12, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, refer to love feasts being attended by false teachers. And it, so, it sounds like these love feasts were taking place during the public gatherings of God's people. And what Paul describes in Corinth are also love feasts that are taking place during the gathering of God's people corporately. These love feasts were supposed to be about fellowship. They were supposed to be about worship. But they had become so perverted that Paul tells the Corinthians, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Apparently, the Corinthians thought they were celebrating the Lord's Supper. They broke bread. They passed the cup. They repeated some of Christ's words or something along these lines. But in reality, Paul says, you are not celebrating the Lord's Supper. In fact, their gatherings had become a mockery of their communion in Christ, for their gatherings were marked by divisions. And it's really disturbing here to read about what happened, what was going on. On the one hand, you had the poor who came to the church supper with nothing and who, right or wrong, expected to have a share in the food brought by the wealthy. It seems that a true spirit of Christian charity would have compelled the rich to want to share their bounty with the poor. The report that Paul heard is the rich don't even wait for the others to join them at the table, but go ahead and they eat their own food that they have brought. It almost sounds like they quickly eat their food so they don't have to be bothered with being asked to share. And to make matter, matters worse, some, while some of the Christians didn't have any food, there were people at these feasts who were so engorging themselves with drink that they were becoming drunk. So these meals had become a perversion of what true Christianity is supposed to be like. And Paul does not mince words in condemning this ungodliness. In an obvious tone of contempt, he says in verse 22, What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. <coughs> and Paul is addressing the rich and he condemns them for really two things. First, they have allowed the Lord's Supper to turn into nothing more than a meal time to fill their bellies and to get drunk. And apparently these problems we understand did not take place just in Corinth because we find out that by the end of the 4th century, the Council of Carthage had actually prohibited these love feasts in the church. They had become so problematic. And so it's evident that Paul already saw the wisdom <coughs> of separating very clearly fellowship meals from the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And his pastoral advice in this particular instance was to eat and drink at home. The other part of the problem, as Paul sees it, is how the rich believers have despised the church of God and humiliated those who have nothing. And this word despised means to think little of. The rich don't think much of God's people, these poor Christians who are there gathering with them. And how unloving to humiliate the poor by rubbing their noses in their plight in a way that makes sure everyone in the church knows about it in a public meal. To treat God's people this way and to do, do it during what should be a time of fellowship and worship in remembrance of Christ's death shows how little they think of Christ and his death. 
Christ's body and blood shed on the cross, that's the basis of the church's very existence. There, there is no church without Christ's atoning blood on our behalf. Without a sacrifice of sin, we would still be enemies of God, dead in our trespasses and sins. And what the rich are not taking to heart is that Christ died for those poor brethren within the body there. These poor are precious to Jesus. And to despise the church, as these rich church members are doing, can only take place when you somehow think that you are not in need of God's grace like others. Ultimately, they are despising the church's Savior, which is a very serious matter. And Paul goes on to recount to them the institution of the Lord's Supper as it had been given to Paul by the resurrected Christ. This is a recounting Um, As he words it, it's something that he had already told them. And after he repeats the historical setting and purpose of the Lord's Supper there in verses 23 through 26, he then goes on to describe further how they have perverted the Lord's Supper into an occasion of sinning against Christ. He says in verse 27, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So the Corinthians have eaten the bread and have drunk the cup of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, exactly by treating it like an ordinary meal. They have used it irreverently. So careless and profane have they been that Paul says they are guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. He says they are eating and drinking without discerning the Lord's body. And that Greek word discern means to properly evaluate something. They are not properly evaluating the significance of the bread and wine as symbols of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. They are eating bread and they are drinking wine as though they are just ordinary food and drink. If they were properly using the bread and wine in a sacramental sense, they would discern that these are symbols of the body and blood of their Savior. The body and blood of of our Savior, these were the things that were offered on Calvary for our salvation. The body and blood of Christ, it stands here for all of the suffering that our Lord graciously endured for us in body and soul. Really, the price that he paid for our salvation is beyond comprehension as he died, bearing the full wrath and curse of God, the wrath and curse that we justly deserve for our sins against God. The bread and wine of the supper represent that precious suffering and death of our Lord. And to use them irreverently and carelessly, without understanding, without discerning the true value of what these things are about, is to become guilty of despising Christ's sacrificial death for us. Just as the man who tramples on his country's flag is guilty of dishonoring his country, so those who come to the Lord's Supper with disregard for the symbols of Christ's body and blood are showing disregard for Christ himself. Let it be stated clearly that to in any way minimize or belittle the cross of Christ is to be guilty of irreverence toward Christ. When you realize how inappropriately the Lord's Supper was being handled in Corinth, it's not surprising to hear of God's response of judgment, making many of the believers there physically weak and ill. Some were even taken from this life. These judgments are called discipline which brings out that these are chastening judgments meant to bring repentance. Even these horrible sins against the body and blood of Christ can be forgiven, but 
need to be confessed as sin. And ironically, it's the, the body and blood of Jesus they have disregarded that must in fact be what they rely on as the payment for their sin. So we've considered how the Corinthians perverted the Lord's Supper. So let's consider then what is to be the purpose of the Lord's Supper as God intended. And that purpose is clearly stated by Jesus. Purpose is also substantiated by the historical context in which the Supper was instituted. Jesus himself in the institution of the Lord's Supper said that the breaking and eating of the bread as well as the drinking of the cup are to be done in remembrance of him. There are a lot of things that can and should be remembered about our Lord, but the focus of the Lord's Supper is on remembering Christ as the one who died for our sins. We know this because Jesus said that in the eating of the bread and drinking of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so according to Christ's Christ's own appointment, the eating of the bread and drinking of the cup is is a way to show forth his death and to remember his sacrifice on the cross for us. The focus of the Lord's Supper on the Lord's death is also evident from the historical context in which Christ instituted this supper. The immediate occasion was a celebration of the Feast of Passover. And uh, that feast, the Passover meal, involved eating bread and drinking wine in remembrance of God's deliverance of his people from Egypt. And also a key part of the Jewish Old Testament Passover celebration was the sacrificing and eating of lambs in remembrance of those lambs in Egypt whose blood was shed and put on the doorposts so that the angel of death would pass over. You understand that those lambs were pictures, they were types of the true lamb of God, Jesus, whose blood truly atones for sin and shields the sinner from God's wrath. The people of God in the Old Testament, they put blood on their doorposts and over the lintels of their, of, their, of their houses as an act of faith. But their faith was not simply in God saving them through the angel of death from, uh, from uh, the, the death of the firstborn there in Egypt. But the true people of God made use of that lamb's blood as a, as a symbolic receiving of the salvation from sin that would take place through the coming Christ as he would shed his blood on behalf of his people. And so the lesson for all time is that those who want protection from God's wrath must take refuge in the blood of Christ, must receive him as Savior. You must by faith receive Christ as your Passover lamb, knowing that you need his blood to cover your sins. You need him to make you righteous in the sight of God. And that Jesus' blood is the fulfillment and reality of what actually saves us is evident when Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The cup of wine is now a symbol of the new covenant in which no longer are animal sacrifices needed because Jesus has ratified and he has secured the salvation of sinners. And think of the significance that the Passover was being celebrated on the very night that Jesus was betrayed unto death. It was with the cross looming in the immediate future that Jesus took the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper and said, eat and drink in remembrance of me. And uh, all of the significance of what Christ was about to do was coinciding with Passover, and this was no coincidence. Jesus, as the actual Lamb of God, was going to deliver his people from their sins 
by offering his own blood and sacrifice on the cross. And as Jesus gathered with his disciples for a Passover meal, it would not do to use the lamb of the Passover to symbolize himself because the lambs and, and, and lamb's blood must be set aside with the coming of the real lamb. But Jesus would take the bread and wine of Passover and use those as symbols of himself in his suffering and death on the cross. And so knowing that Jesus was very clearly here connecting his death with the Lord's Supper becomes vitally important that we use it in the church as he intended. This brings us to the importance of proper preparation in coming to the Lord's table. We've seen how the Corinthians perverted a ceremony that was given as a way to remember Christ's death. Paul reported that the Corinthians ate the bread and drank the cup unworthily and brought guilt and judgment on themselves. And the point of telling you these things, of telling the Corinthians these things, is so that they will eat and drink worthily in order to avoid being guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord and incurring God's displeasure. If your desire is to be a worthy participant in the Lord's Supper, Paul says in verse 28 that you need to examine yourself. So what does it mean to eat and drink in a worthy manner? And what kind of examination of ourselves is God here calling us to make? Well, it should be clear that eating and drinking unworthily is not a warning against coming to the Lord's table with feelings of unworthiness. It's actually appropriate that we would come with feelings of unworthiness. If you somehow think that you are worthy in and of yourself or can make yourself worthy of God's favor, you're not going to be eating and drinking in remembrance of Christ's death. For how could you if you're not convinced of your utter need for Christ's death in your place? The whole point of the Lord's Supper is remembering and proclaiming Christ's death exactly because we are unworthy sinners. And it is Christ's death that alone can earn us righteousness and make us worthy in God's sight. And so what is to be condemned as unworthy is a use of the Lord's Supper that fails to exalt Christ's death as the basis of salvation. If you come to the Lord's Supper thinking that you don't need Christ's body and and blood, or that eating and drinking itself can save you, or that you have no understanding of how this wine and bread symbolize Jesus and his death on the cross. If, if these things uh, are not clear to you, you're not, you're not having that kind of discernment, then you are eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. And now we can begin to understand more clearly what kind of self-examination Paul's talking about. He's talking about whether or not you understand the purpose of the Lord's Supper and want to participate in that purpose. The purpose being to commemorate Christ's death. Are you viewing the bread and wine as symbols of Christ's body and blood shed on the cross? Do you see Christ's death as worthy of commemoration, of remembrance? To do that, you have to know that you need Christ's death as your atoning sacrifice for sin. You have to be convinced that his suffering and death are at the very heart of your salvation. And so you must, by faith, receive Christ as the sacrifice for your sins. In other words, to participate worthily, you must come with faith, a conscious faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what about the frame of mind then? It's also a part of this worthy participation 
You must examine your heart. Do you come reverently with great respect for Christ and his saving work? Are you thankful for Christ's death? Do you have a desire to eat and drink bread and wine as a way to proclaim his death until he comes? Remember, thankfulness for Christ's death always takes the form of striving to do good works that please Christ. Is your longing to please Christ in a life of obedience because he has given his life for you? So we are reminded in this text that it is possible that even the worship of our God can be perverted. But as long as you remember your desperate need for Christ's death in your place and remain in awe of him giving his body and blood for your salvation, then you will be ready and able to offer worship that is reverent and pleasing to Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would spare us from worship that is actually displeasing to you, worship that does not build up your people. Father, we pray that you would spare us from any divisions, not just schism, but divisions within our own body. And Father, we pray that you would enable us to participate in the Lord's Supper worthily, that we would participate with a very conscious faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, understanding that this bread and wine symbolize his body and blood given for us, for our salvation, that we would know very clearly that we need this salvation, that there is salvation in none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ourselves are sinners, that we ourselves are unworthy, but our Savior is worthy. Father, we pray that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper as we come to worship, to hear your word preached, as we, we see baptisms, Lord, we pray that in all of these things, the focus would be upon Christ our Savior, upon our desperate need for the grace that he alone can give us. And may we always be thankful, thankful for what Christ has done. And out of this thankfulness, out of this awareness of your grace, Lord, may there be a humility toward you and toward one another. And flowing out of that humility, may there be love for one another, where we recognize that as we have experienced so much grace and, and how wonderful grace is that we would be gracious toward others. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.